Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Welcome to episode 46 of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. Our theme for this episode is yoga myths about the knees. And um, yoga myths about the knees, there are potentially quite a few myths that could be discussed when it comes to the topic of this area of the body. And we actually threw out to our listeners to suggest some questions that they had about the knees, uh, specifically in like a yoga context, but also just general or otherwise about the knees. And we got a ton of questions and it helped Travis and I realize that there really, there really are a lot of topics that we can talk about. And some of the questions we received about the knees were actually things that we have topics we've discussed about the knee in previous podcast episodes, but they were in episodes that were not specifically on the knee. It was like about something else, but it was related. So our plan for today is like in an ideal world, we will address all the questions that we got, but we're actually going to put these ones that are repeat that we've addressed before, going to put those at the bottom of our list and maybe get to them toward the end of this episode if we have time. And if we don't have time, we will include links in the show notes to the episodes in which we already have, we've already talked about those issues. But, um, you know, some people haven't listened to these other episodes and so it might serve them. And they're also just very pertinent in an episode in which we're talking about the knee. So that's our plan for today. And then just know that in our previous episode, number 45, that episode was also on the knee, but it wasn't so much on yoga myths. It was more just like laying out a foundation. It was our ABCs of the knees, which stands for anatomy, biomechanics, and cueing. So we definitely recommend listening to that, especially for just a good foundation when it comes to the knee. But you don't have to have listened to that episode in order to listen to this episode. But some of that information we discussed in the last one may just, you know, help uh, place what we talk about today in a bigger context or make it a little more meaningful. So just so you have an idea of where we're planning to head today, our plan is here are the questions that we want to address that we've never addressed on the podcast before. So we're going to try to start. We are going to start with these questions. Will running wear out your knees? Should we avoid locking the knees in yoga? Uh, our knee, our knee clicks, pops, and noises in general, are they like a bad thing? What do they mean? Uh, are open kinetic chain knee exercises dangerous? And we'll define what that is in case you're not clear on what that means. But that uh, we might talk about chair pose, utkatasana, and knee alignment because we got some questions about that. We, uh, we might talk about warrior one and the back knee in warrior one pose. And finally, we might talk about whether we should avoid letting the front knee kind of track inward or cave inward in some of our yoga standing poses like warrior two and our lunges, chair pose. So those are like the new questions that that are fresh that we've never addressed. And then if we get through all of them and have time, the other questions we got for this episode that we've addressed before are, and these are good ones. This is why we've addressed them before too. Uh, should we avoid letting the knee track forward over the toes? So like, is knees over toes bad? Should we flex the foot in pigeon to protect the knee? And is it bad to place your foot on your knee in tree pose, Vrikshasana? So those are excellent questions. And uh, we may get to them for like a review of those topics today. We'll see if we have time. And then before we dive into our yoga myths about the knees, just a quick reminder of some ways that you can support Travis and myself and our work with this podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating or a review, which we'd so appreciate. You can also sign up for my email newsletter in order to stay in the loop on everything that's going on around here with Travis and me and our work. And you can do that at JennyRawlings.com newsletter. 
And you can also consider joining Travis and myself for our one-of-a-kind Strength for Yoga remote group training program. And that's a strength training program we designed specifically with yogis in mind to make strength training accessible and relevant for like the yoga population. You can use code podcast 30 for 30% off your first month in our remote group training program and like links for more info on that are in the show notes. We'd love to connect with you through remote group training. So um, yeah, that's, that's everything that's going on. And now we can turn our attention to some, to some yoga myths. Perfect. So in the last episode, we we had like a warn, uh, not a warning. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. If, what did you call if it? If we talked about myths, we <laughs> we stopped the other person. So this time, if we talk about any anatomy or biomechanics, <laughs> that's right. no, no, we're I like that was last episode. That. Yeah, no, we'll, yeah. We'll give a little reminder. We were joking about trying to keep last episode's anatomy and this one's myths, but there are always going to be some overlap, right? Yeah. And I, so like you said in your lovely introduction, the that episode, if you haven't listened to it, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll try to fill you in. But it does right. give good background for on the anatomy and biomechanics to prep for the, the topics for this episode. That's so true. Kind of including our very first question, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's our first question we wanted to address today? The first question is, will running wear out your knees? Yes. And the person who asked this in uh, in my Facebook group, which I don't think I mentioned before, but we oh, threw yeah. out requests for questions for this episode in my super awesome Facebook group, which you're in, Travis, and anyone else can be in if they would like to just search yoga and movement science on Facebook and you'll find it. We recently um, crossed the 3000 member milestone you're so which is right. pretty rad i kind of and, and you know the group is only a few months old yeah three thousand members what in three months three or four maybe somewhere between three and four so yeah. i feel so like it's, that's it's really pretty, nice pretty cool place to be and people have been really engaging in there like that's really what i want is for the group to you know the community to engage and help support and educate one another and then i'm there and you're there too but um yeah, it's just, it's been really great. I've been loving the group. But when we threw out questions for knees, we got so, like, it really uh, surprised me how many questions that people had and that were just things we could talk about, like good questions for the knees. That's people why we split talk about this. knees. Uh, it's a big topic. <laughs> yeah, as we discovered when originally we were, we were going to do one episode and then we were like, well, we couldn't possibly fit all of these great questions in with the ABCs. So here we go. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Round two. <laughs> so here are, yeah, we're addressing the questions. And so the first person in the group, you already said what the question was, but I just kind of liked her exact question was, which was um, uh, impact affecting the knee joint, right? Because running is impact on the knee. So mm-hmm. her question was impact affecting the knee joint. I know this isn't yoga, but people often say that running ruins your knees. Does it really? Good question. I know, because it's true that we hear that, right? Isn't that kind of just like a common claim? Oh, yeah. Claim? Everybody thinks that. Well, yeah. What do, they, what do people say? Like, what do they say? Uh, just, yeah, running is bad for your knees. Like, oh, if you run, you're destined for knee pain. Uh, yes, else, totally. It's going to give you bad knees. It's going to yeah. wear down the cartilage in your knee joints. Wear and, and give tear. you wear it it's gonna wear and tear yeah and give you osteoarthritis i think that's like maybe a a caution so we talked about osteoarthritis in the last episode right Mm -hmm. um which is yeah we talked there are a lot of misconceptions about it definitely listen to the previous episode for more but one of the characteristics of osteoarthritis is it's it's painful um combined with like degradation of the cartilage which is like the lining of uh, the knee joint. And you can have also osteoarthritis and other joints like the hip, but today we're kind of focusing on the knee. So that's the common claim that running is bad, just generally bad for your knees. Uh, but but <laughs> there was a really cool study that was uh, that was done. It was a systematic review and meta-analysis. The title was The Association of Recreational and Competitive Running with Hip and Knee Osteoarthritis. 
a systematic review with meta-analysis. And this was a really, I thought, kind of potentially eye-opening and encouraging study. And basically, it it looked at, it had 25 studies in the systematic review, and they meta-analyzed 17 of the 25. What does that mean? <laughs> You're a better one to answer this. Uh, okay. I think... <laughs> I know I can you know what I think it means. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, that the meta-analysis part means that the methods that were used in like 17 of the 25 were such that they were able to combine them together and analyze the data collectively. Is that sort yeah. of what it, like they were able to do? You can explain this much better than I can. No, you, you said it exactly right. So they were able to include 25 studies that met their criteria for looking at the association between running and hip and knee OA. But 17 of those studies were conducted in such a way that the results lended themselves to pooling the data so that right. like they could combine or synthesize it and get one or, or, or multiple, but, but basically like a summary statistic of the, that relationship that combined all the data from the 17 studies. Thank you so much for explaining that. You you uh, said it much more succinctly than I did. <laughs> but you, yeah, you explained it in more depth. And I really appreciate it. I used it. a couple bigger stats. <laughs> totally, totally. Uh, but anyway, and systematic reviews with meta-analyses are great because, because, like you said, they pull together a lot of data from multiple studies. And so they just maybe have more statistical power than looking at like a single study. They just yes, maybe a little more weighty. Exactly right. So the challenge is when you have any single study, usually just it's hard to get a ton of people into one study. And so you get you get a result, but you lack confidence. Basically, like you found the result, but if you had collected another batch of people, however many people, let's say your study was 50 people, if you got another batch of 50 people, like the, the answer, the, the finding could be anywhere within a range uh, around the previous number that you found in very layman's terms. So when you get more people, you that range shrinks. That range is called a confidence interval. But yeah, ba basically you can be more confident that the number that you're getting from the when you combine studies is closer to the true value within the population at large so um when you can pull, pull together 17 studies uh you can say more confidently like this is this is the true value or 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 the you can be more confident that the range of values, the range of values around the value that you found is going to be smaller. So you're, you're just, mm -hmm. you're honing in. Honing in more. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Which is one reason why this is a cool study to, to mention today in, yeah, in this uh, is relation great. to this question. So basically, mm -hmm. and we're just being very like summary, we'll link the study in the show notes for anyone who wants to look in more depth. But basically what the study found was uh, it looked at three different groups of runners uh, competitive runners. So those would be runners that were actually like kind of competing at a more elite level and then recreational runners. So they weren't really, they weren't competing at that same level. And then it also looked at sedentary individuals. So people who didn't run at all. It was those three groups. And what the, what this uh, systematic review found was that the recreational runners actually had lower incidence of knee and hip osteoarthritis compared to the competitive runners and compared to sedentary individuals. So it's just an association, you know, it's like people who run recreationally tend to actually have lower incidence of osteoarthritis. So it's not necessarily telling us that the running is preventative. It could be, but I don't think, I don't think that that's, uh, you can conclude that from this, but it does seem suggestive that at least running isn't, or recreationally running, isn't um, wearing down their knee and like causing more degradation, which would then lead to higher incidence of OA, osteoarthritis. So the, the kind of main takeaway was just people who run recreationally. So kind of, you know, moderately, or, you know, if you think someone who doesn't run at all, and then someone who runs a ton, like marathons over a long time, the um, people in the middle, the recreational runners seem to have better 
better health with regard to their hips and knees, but sedentary people had worse. And then the competitive runners, you know, because maybe there's like a dosage uh, issue here and like running could be good, but at what amount, you know, like what amount is maybe too much. So this seems to suggest that people that are on the competitive side that actually might not be so good. Um, and people who don't do anything, that's also not good. But when you're moderately active, do you, th- am I s- yeah, that, okay? that, that, that is certainly a possibility. And it just, the one thing to the one caveat there, cause that mm-hmm. if you look at it like that, it's like, okay, well then you can do too much where it wears out the joint. And, right. and like, if you're running competitively, like you said, marathons, um, repeat, like, well, not, not, you only really crazy people do a lot of marathons, like back to back. That's but, right. That's pretty, high. uh, yeah. whatever their definition for competitive runners were, it's probably a certain amount of mileage and maybe a certain mm-hmm. number of races. But anyway, the other side of it is that they're the, the running itself might not be exactly what caught, like you said, you can't show cause and effect with a cross-sectional or a meta-analysis mm-hmm. of cross-sectional studies, but it could be, for example, that there were other things associate, like s- surrounding the fact that they were competitive runners, such as, well, if you run competitively, that may increase your risk of injury. And when you sustain injury, it's really the injury yes, that Travis. is contributing to the development of OA. Austria, so yeah, yeah it... It's not to say that it's it's not to say that it wasn't there. Like the competitive runners had more OA than the recreational runners, um, but it's not like it. It's not necessarily this one to one causal pathway. Yeah, it's just well, maybe the running caused these other things, or maybe these people who were running had these other things that then contributed to the OA. So if you're a competitive runner, like it's not it's not a foregone conclusion that just because of being a competitive runner, you're going to develop away more than you would if you were sedent- uh, more than you would if you were recreational. Yes. Thank you for putting that into perspective for us. Um, that's really helpful. But I think that basically just in summary, uh, in contrast to the common claims we hear out there that like running is bad for your knees and will wear out your knees. I mean, this, if you, if you look up the systematic review and read it, you'll see that in the in the implication section, they say running at a recreational level can be safely recommended as a general health exercise with the evidence suggesting that it has benefits for hip and knee joint health. The amount of running that is safe for the joints could not be determined. So I just think that's kind of powerful, right? Like running is actually healthy. It's not something we need to necessarily inherently fear as like, yeah, yeah, that I, that's totally uh, I agree with that. And then the what we wish we could say is just, oh, well, this m- amount of mileage is safe or this m- number of competitions per year is safe. And we just, we don't have the yeah, research that we don't know that. tells you that. Yeah. And, and plus there's not going to be any one number because it's always an individual thing. Yes. But uh, so hopefully that kind of helps address that question. So what's mm-hmm. our next question? Should you avoid locking your knees? Yes. Now this question, we got multiple people asked this question in the Facebook group. Yeah. And, or a similar question, you know, like this yeah, locking the knees thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we have, I'm sure our listeners know this and can relate to this, but at least in the yoga world, there's a common tendency to um, teach that people should kind of constantly but at least in like Tadasana and other standing poses that we should just always put a micro bend in our knees in order to protect. What does that mean for a micro bend? If you've never heard that before. Right. So the idea would just be, um, I guess we're going to talk about like what locking the knees even means because it's a little nebulous, but the idea would mean, say you're standing in Tadasana, which is mountain pose or just like anatomical position that if you stand with your knees, like totally straight, uh, you don't want to do that. You want to put a little, a micro bend is just like a little bend. You just put a little one bend degree, five degrees. That's such a good quote. Like how much is micro, right? Like how many yeah. degrees? No yoga teachers that I've ever heard ever say that they don't specify. 
They yeah. just say well, I guess they're not going around the room with the goniometer and measuring your micro bend. Totally. I, actually, it's... you can't even measure a micro bend. You know why? Why not? <laughs> because let, let's say it is five degrees. Then mm -hmm. the goniometer is actually only accurate to plus or minus five degrees. Like that's the amount what? of measurement error that's associated with it. Oh so uh, if you a micro measure it, yeah, if a micro bend is ten degrees, then you could measure it. But if it's five <sighs> degrees, then we we couldn't even be sure if a person were micro bending or not. Oh my gosh, Travis! That's if such we a good were point. going around the room and were trained in goniometry. And although yoga teachers, in my experience, do not specify a certain amount of degrees when they cue yeah. a micro bend, my strong impression is they mean somewhere less than ten degrees. You know, not like yeah, like it's a small amount. So anyway, that's kind of the background. There is it's just this very common cue. The belief is that when we stand with knees straight or or locked, really, but then it's like, what does locked mean? And I think we wanted to talk about that as well, because mm -hmm. I personally find that that term is used inconsistently. And as with so many things we talk about on the podcast, it's like kind of our first step should be to clarify, like, what do we mean by these terms in order to get on the same page about what we're even talking about? Right. So um, in the yoga world, I find that locking the knee is believed to be bad. Although I should say um, there are some yoga styles that actually tell you to lock your knee. What? Like Bikram. Bikram is one example where there's some poses or maybe it's just one pose that I'm thinking of, but like the instruction is to lock your knee. Which pose is that? I think it's a standing single leg standing where you um, take one leg out in front of you and kind of, it's like a standing big toe kind of, okay. um, and you like lock the knee. But mm -hmm. anyway, yeah, that is an actual instruction in some styles of yoga, but then in others, it's like, no, never lock your knees. That's like bad Weird. for your knees. I know. So like, what does locking the knee mean? So what I look, what I discovered in looking into this was that just in plain old biomechanics, which I kind of see as like a, to me, that's an authority on movement when we're talking about terms and movement, like let's just use what, what science uses. But in biomechanics, locking the knee means terminal knee extension. And that's something we talked about in the last episode, Travis, you defined for us what that means. Um, but in biomechanics, that's what it means. And terminal knee extension is not something that's inherently bad. What is terminal knee extension? Uh, terminal knee extension is going into knee hyperextension, which most people, most healthy knees have about five to 10 degrees of knee hyperextension. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Right. And I think that's important to point out because we do also kind of have, I, I believe in the yoga world, there's a common belief that hyperextension of joints is inherently a bad thing and we always want to avoid it. But mm -hmm. what you're telling me and what biomechanics tells us is that the natural healthy, the normal healthy human knee naturally goes into five to 10 degrees of hyperextension. Right. Um, and that's terminal knee extension. And as you explained in the last episode, those five to 10 degrees of hyperextension, like the knee, you know, bending backwards relative to a vertical line is mm -hmm. actually an important range of motion that we want to have in our knees. And sometimes people lose that, like after a knee surgery, and it's like really important that they regain that. Right? Yeah. That's like step number one, numero uno is, yes. well, maybe there's a different numero uno besides like getting swelling down, but uh, <laughs> Get regaining range of motion, not only into flexion or bending, but also straightening five to 10 degrees beyond. At the very least, getting your knee straight to zero is like really important. But then if you like, if you're lacking full extension or, or even five to 10 degrees of hyperextension, it can really mess with you functionally when you go to do things like jogging, for example. You're right. 
So it sounds like it's an important and a desirable range of motion to to have and to get back mm-hmm. if you if you lose it. Mm-hmm. And another thing of another thing I believe I understand about terminal knee extension and Travis, let me know if I'm wrong about this, but generally when you're just standing, say just like in everyday life, maybe you're standing in line or something like at the movie theater or whatever, but you're just standing for a while. Um, you know, typically like we don't tend to stand and then go out of our way to put like a micro bend in our knees. You know, we just kind of stand with our legs straight. And, um, often when we come into straight knees or terminal knee extension, which technically is, is a little bit of hyperextension when we're in that position, our quadriceps, the muscles on the front of the thighs, they can kind of relax. They don't necessarily need to be actively engaged to hold us up. They can just chill. And then the passive structures on the back of the knee kind of help to hold this up. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's kind of what happens. Like, I guess you could be in terminal knee extension and end range, and then you could like squeeze your leg muscles. So you could do that, but you could also just let that go and you could still stand up, right? You're just mm-hmm. not actively using your muscles. And um, that seems like a good thing because if you're going to stand for a long time, you probably want that ability to not have to actively be you know, yeah. using your muscles the whole time. I think that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Yeah. It gives like, how you do you break. mean? It gives like, you a break. Yeah. Because you'd get tired maintaining a micro bend for two hours. Well, in line for 10 minutes is different, but two hours at a concert, you know? Mm, totally. Yeah. An event. Yeah. You like want that ability to stand for a long time without also having to like engage the quads mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. But, and maybe. Maybe the answer is to cycle back and forth between a micro bend and full extension. And maybe that's, I don't know for sure, but I speculate that that's probably what we do. Oh, just because like there's also, without... yeah, there's also the thing where if you do lock your knees out for prolonged periods, that can affect blood flow and then you can faint. And I don't think that that happens to everybody. I mean, I, I think it, probably doesn't happen to everybody, but it can happen to some people. Yes. Someone mentioned that in a question that she asked us. She said that she Googled and found like suggestions about that. Yeah. I think, I think that that's true, but I don't think it affects everybody. And it's also probably, we're never standing in in yoga for that long that that would actually happen. No, I don't think we have to. Yeah. Well, um, I did want to, you know, our friend, Andrew McGonigal, who I has, know. yeah, he's a friend of ours. He's written for my blog and he and Matthew Hui wrote the book, The Physiology of Yoga, which, which we're big fans of and we highly recommend. Uh, I'm, I, I'm a fan of Andrew's work and I'm on his email list. And he recently actually sent out an email uh, two or three months ago that was about locking the knees. He's mm-hmm. really good with myth busting too. And I, I like to recommend his stuff, but I wanted to just read something that he wrote about this. So Andrew is, um, he's a doctor, he's an MD, and uh, he knows a lot about anatomy, and um, I really appreciate his perspectives. So he wrote about this, and he said, he basically was kind of trying to dispel the fear-mongering around locking the knees, and his, what he wrote was, in an ideal scenario, and he's talking about in a yoga context, hyperextension of the knee should be a choice that we are making, and not just the default knee position that we adopt um, it's best to avoid knee hyperextension during your asana practice if you are rebuil- rehabilitating from a knee injury or if it feels painful to do so. Uh, taking the knee joint into its end range of extension can make it more challenging to effectively engage the muscles around the joint, therefore limiting our ability to increase strength here. These are these are his, some points he made. Although I know you just mentioned with regard to rehabilitation that sometimes people do intentionally want to stretch. Yeah, that's that different. You're th- th- those stretches would be like you're sitting and you're pulling the joint into hyperextension, and then right. maybe with the rega- the motion that you've regained, you would want to work some quadricep exercises where you're engaging the quads to create that active extension. Um, but I, it's different context from what he's talking about. Totally. And then just the last thing that I like that he said uh, was also, if you are attempting to get into the Guinness Book of of World Records for practicing the longest held tree pose, 
then you are going to have to hyperextend the knee of your standing leg to conserve muscular energy in your legs. Oh, I wonder what the record is. I know. Is there even? Is that even in them? Maybe longest time standing on one leg. Maybe, Maybe but I, I doubt it's three leg. Yes, Travis, you and your one, your one leg. Mm-hmm. Um. So anyway, uh, what do you think about that? Does that kind of help maybe address, maybe put into perspective this idea of locking the knees? Um, it's not bad to go into like five to 10 degrees of knee hyperextension is normal for longer bouts of standing. It seems something that's just kind of natural to do. So we're not always actively using the muscles. Right. I mean, maybe in some contexts, it may be different, but in a yoga context, we're never really holding anything for very long. So to me, it occurs to me that the the constant cues to microbend your knee, microbend your knee, like I've had that taught to me so much, just when I'm standing in Tavasana, like put a microbend in. To me, it seems a little micromanaging and maybe not necessary. I I think that's true. I don't, but then like Andrew also mentioned that it's fine to cue that, right? But then just- Yes. Oh, that's like, right. We yeah, want to yeah, yeah. make sure that we're not adding an unnecessary fear-mongering narrative behind it, right? Totally. So you may cue it um, for certain reasons, like it, rather, maybe not necessarily just all the time is your default, but you may want to mm-hmm. cue a microbend, but maybe avoid language around, we're doing this to protect the knee. Right. So it's maybe more about the, the engagement. More about getting the muscles to engage. And speaking of that, um, in a strength training context, Travis, you know, like the, something like a single leg deadlift, mm-hmm. which is similar to warrior three in yoga, but usually you have a weight, like usually you're, you're loaded. I know that like when you teach me a single leg deadlift or when I've seen you teach it in general, you do sometimes cue, like have a little bend in your knee. Yeah, there. definitely. And my impression isn't that you're so much cueing that to protect the knee. And you certainly don't use that in your language. But my impression <laughs> is you you cue that more just to get the muscles working more, right? Of the yeah, standing leg. So yeah. So if you if it is if your knee is fully straightened, then you don't have to work as hard because those passive mechanisms are mm-hmm. keeping your just supporting you. But if you bend the knee, then you get more work and more control on both sides of the joint to keep it in that degree of bend. I I suppose that if you were holding a really heavy weight, then maybe that could become problematic if your knee, like if, if the forces were acting to just continue to push the knee Crush into hyperextension, because mm-hmm. yeah, that hyperextension is or can be a mechanism of some knee injuries. But also those are, that's like typically high forces and like sudden impact, Mm -hmm. high velocity, high forces. Yeah. Like landing awkwardly from a jump on one leg and then the knee Mm -hmm. goes into hyperextension, which is different from performing a a warrior three hinge or a single leg deadlift with weight. Yeah. Totally. In yoga or with weight. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for yeah highlighting those examples. So, um, so yeah, all in all, you know, maybe it's a cue to use for certain intentions in certain moments, but to use it to protect the knee in yoga is probably not necessary. And maybe we wouldn't recommend it as far as giving people the impression that their knee is fragile. Right. A hundred percent. Which we don't love. Okay. <laughs> Next topic. Next topic. All Our right. knee. Yeah. So you can tell us what is it? Okay. Uh, Our next topic, our knee clicks and pops, also lovingly referred to as Rice Krispies bad. Rice Krispies is what someone said in their question. Yeah, if you hear crunchy noises from your knee, uh, is that a problem? Just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. As you can probably tell from this conversation, Travis and I value taking an evidence-based approach to the body and movement. We channel our understanding of movement science into our one-of-a-kind Strength for Yoga remote group training offering, which is a monthly strength program we created to make strength training accessible and relevant for yogis. Our Strength for Yoga program also comes with unlimited access to my full yoga class library. Use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in our program 
or your first month than any other membership on my website. You can learn more and sign up at jennyrawlings.com and the link is in the show notes. Also remember that other ways you can support us are by signing up for my email newsletter at jennyrawlings.com slash newsletter and by subscribing to this podcast and leaving us a rating or a review. And now back to our episode. Uh, our next topic are knee clicks and pops also lovingly referred to as rice krispies dad so rice krispies hear, is what someone said in there yeah question. if you hear crunchy noises from your knee uh is that a problem i think this is a really good question and i've actually i had a previous answer that i give that i would give for this and i i want to amend it a little bit and give a based on newer information, a little more of a nuanced answer. What do you think about that? All right. I think that's great. <laughs> so in general, and generally when you talk to most evidence-based um, like healthcare practitioners, you know, about joint noises and generally really just all joint noises, but I believe the research that I'm aware of is just on the knee. But I think sometimes we extrapolate that to be the whole rest of the body. But generally, you'll get the answer that um, joint noises without pain, so just the noise, no pain, are nothing to worry about. And they just, um, they're not an indication of anything. And you can just keep going about your merry way. And it's fine. Uh, joint noises, just so, to, just so we define them, like in the medical literature, there's a term called crepitus. C-R-E-P-I-T-U-S. And that's the, the, the term for these, um, these noises that can just happen in many of the joints in our body. They might sound like pops or Rice Krispies. It seems like we don't really know exactly what's making the noise, but one um, theory is it's like uh, air bubbles in the joint, joint cavity that pop. It also could be like tendons kind of snapping over bony prominences. Those are some ideas for where the noises come from. Mm -hmm. But in a bigger picture, I think it's always helpful to remember, you know, the human body just makes noise. Like our physiology is such that sometimes noises emanate out of us and noises in and of themselves all by themselves aren't necessarily a bad thing. Um, but so, yeah, so, but we're kind of talking like, like knee, knee crepitus specifically, like knee noise. So I think most people and myself in the past would have been like, it's total, it's just nothing. Like, don't even worry about it. And I still pretty much think that, mm -hmm. but there is some newer research to suggest, and this is newer within the past, like few years to suggest that, um, knee noise, knee crepitus actually does have an association later on. Like if you have knee crepitus and you have no pain, there is a higher association of knee crepitus with osteoarthritis of the knee in the future. Well, shoot. That... <laughs> exactly. So it's like, it may be an indication that there are some changes in your joint. Um, you know, like we talked about in the last episode, these, it's just natural for joints to change over time. And perhaps those changes could, um, end up in something like osteoarthritis later in life, but apparently knee noise specifically, there is a higher correlation with then later, you know, prospectively later people do develop osteoarthritis. So to me, that's not suggesting that the knee noise is causing it or that you need to stop the knee noise. Remember, we're, the, all this is pain-free. We're talking pain-free noises. But it's maybe more of just a more of an indication of something we talk about a ton on the podcast, which is that you can have joint changes inside or what some people may call damage inside and have no pain and like be pain-free and be totally functional. So it could be that um, maybe crepitus in the knee or some types of crepitus could be an indication that maybe there are some changes, but you don't feel anything. So it's kind of, it's like encouraging. It's like, we all, so many of us have no, um, changes all throughout our body in so many joints. We talked about this in the last episode, but, and we often don't most, most commonly don't have pain associated with them. And this just may be an example of that, that you actually could see and feel in your body more than just knowing it, like in your head, you know? Gotcha. So it's not all doom and gloom. Yeah. I still think it's not something you need to worry about. But yeah. I think to say, I, I've said before, and I see it said a lot, that joint noises, they don't correlate with anything. You know, anything that could be negative. And I don't think that's entirely true. I think they can be correlated with future osteoarthritis. 
What do you think about that? I think I, well, um, I've now learned that in this moment from you too, and that's good to know. Um, right. Yeah. But like you said, I don't know if it changes anything. Well, yeah. to be more accurate, it changes what I would say, but I don't know if it, like you said, there's no need to worry about it. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think we actually do know from some cool research that knuckle cracking is actually not associated with, with future development of osteoarthritis. Mm, Whereas that's right. like a common claim you tend to hear, like, don't crack your knuckles. Yeah. You'll give yourself so, arthritis. It's, it's kind of uh, a, the opposite of what you might expect, right? So we're like, we were talking before about these, just these noises that happen when we move unintentionally mm-hmm. and okay. So it does turn out that they might be associated with future development of OA, but we also like people commonly claim, Oh, if you crack your knuckles, Oh, if you crack your neck, that's going to, that's going to give you OA later. And that's not the case. That's right. That's right. It's kind of like a flipped way to, to look at it. Um, but yeah, yeah. So I think that's interesting and yeah, we just, that's what the research suggests. So yeah, still don't really need to worry about anything, but maybe we're a little more informed. I'm sure there's more work to be done on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think, can we move on from joint crepitus to our next yeah, let's do topic? It. Yeah. So our next topic is a fascinating one, um, <laughs> based, based on my interest. Um, but the question is, are open chain knee extensions bad? And then as a follow-up, are they bad during anterior cruciate or ACL rehab? Um, or are they always bad or are they never bad? And so we talked about the difference between open chain and closed chain knee extension before, but maybe we could briefly hearken back to that which is just the, the difference is whether the attachment, well, you say, you say that you, you describe the difference better. So go ahead. <laughs> Thanks. Tro- more, I don't know. That's true, simple. but, uh, open chain exercise is when the distal end of the limb is free to move and a closed chain exercise is when the distal end is fixed. So if you're thinking the knee, um, an open chain knee movement would be kicking a soccer ball because the foot is free to move a closed chain knee exercise would be a squat because the feet stay fixed and then the rest of your body moves relative to the feet. Does that? Yeah. 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 That, that gets it. So the, I don't know when this started, but at some point somewhere along the line, some research or some person uh, like claimed suggested. that, yeah, that there was more strain on the ACL in open chain exercise. So when you're using a machine to do your leg extensions, they said, especially for people who have recently undergone an anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction. So they have uh, a graft for in, in place of their natural ACL, they now have a graft either from a cadaver or from their own body from a different body part. So the idea is that as that graft is healing, we want to avoid straining it. Therefore, we should avoid these open chain knee extension exercises. And then that either, I don't know where it came from or who said it first, but other people also believe that even independent of the, uh, like having an ACL injury, that nobody should do open chain knee extension. Yeah, nobody should ever do open chain knee extension because of the shear forces. So like if basically the quad or not the quad, the thigh is fixed when you're doing a leg extension on the machine or a knee extension on the machine. And when you have the weight on the front of the shin, that is causing a shearing force that's like causing the tibia to be moved anterior to posteriorly on the tibia um, in an undesirable, theoretically undesirable way. That was like the claim. Yeah, that's the claim. And if you look at it, you're like, oh, okay, of course, that makes sense. Knee extensions are bad. But (laughs) 
as it turns out, it's more complicated than that. That's right. As it turns out, more recent research has actually tested that and looked at that and discovered that um, there's no systematic evidence of a difference in anterior tibial laxity. So that's like the yeah the tibia translating forward at the knee. There's no difference there between those who perform open versus closed chain exercises after anterior cruciate ligament surgery. Um, so basically it was like maybe an idea like, yeah, that's, that's going to ha- open chain will translate the tibia forward more and that's going to stretch or pull the ACL graft and that's going to be bad. But once it was actually tested in research, it appears that actually that's just not true. And um, closed chain, like a squat, you know, a closed chain, knee extension exercise, it's no different in terms of the tibia movement relative to the knee um, than the open chain, according to um, lots of randomized control trials on this topic. So the newer word on the street, like it just seems like it reminds me of a lot of other myths that we discuss on the podcast that are kind of wide, widespread in like the rehab world. It seems like today the new, the current word on the street is like open chain knee extensions are just fine. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they're actually a really good idea. Uh, even for someone recovering from ACL surgery, they're actually a really good idea because as we talk, like if you picture a leg extension in a machine, you're sitting in this chair, your feet are hooked around the weight, and then you lift the weight up with your feet. Um, that's a way that you actually really isolate your quadriceps. Like you're really just targeting those quadriceps and strengthening them. And that would be open chain, which we're told is bad. And then a lot of people will say, don't do that. Instead, do a squat because that's better. That's closed chain. That's that's safer. Um, some people would say it's, quote, more functional. But the mm. thing is, a, a squat is actually a compound movement, right? It's not an isolation movement for the quads because in a squat, you're moving so many more joints. And therefore you might think like I'm strengthening my quadriceps. I'm sure to a certain amount you are, but you're also using all these other muscles. So if your quads are weaker, the other muscles, like say your glutes, they could work a little harder and take over. And you may not realize that, but you actually could target the quads less effectively in a closed chain exercise, like a squat. What do you think about that? Yeah, that I, your explanation is perfect. So oftentimes the like, quadriceps strength after these knee injuries is really, really important to get back to restore symmetry well, strength in both sides and then symmetrical strength. Like the threshold is usually 90% that you want to get your operated or injured side or involved side up to 90% of the uninvolved side. And if you are fearful of and avoidant of knee extensions and you just rely on these closed chain quadriceps exercises, it's really difficult to bring that lag or that reduce that gap because you can use other muscles to work around and compensate for that quadriceps weakness. So the leg extension is actually the only way to perform isolated um knee extension it like where you're there are no other muscles involved and i've heard some so it's 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 so interesting the way the pendulum swings because there were these people who were saying you should never do this and now i there's a physical therapist who i went to a a journal club that he led his name is terry grindstaff And he said that if you don't have a leg extension machine at your physical therapy clinic, then you shouldn't even be advertising that you do ACL rehab. What a bold statement. Yeah, like it's unethical to claim that you can rehabilitate this injury without doing that exercise. That's how important it is to be able to isolate the quads. Oh my! Isn't that wild? It's so different than like all these warnings (laughs) before, because I've also heard people say, oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say there is still some consideration surrounding the timing of beginning open chain knee extension in relation to a a surgery. And And we wanted to point that out, right? Yeah. And I think you like the statistic you said, or you found was four weeks. 
four weeks that you could so if you just had acl surgery and again none of this is medical advice we're not telling people what to do but the oh, it seems no yeah it seems like the the recommendation is um if you're super fresh off that surgery you could maybe still do the open chain but you just don't want to do it um in the last 30 degrees of knee extension it's like yeah that range but yeah that you know, and i think that that kind of it might not only be the four the first four weeks. I'm not an expert in the early stages of that rehab, but mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. the point is like once you do introduce it, you're introducing it through an incremental range of motion that is expanding over time. Right, right. Exactly. So um I think that's maybe a good way to address this topic and just helpful. I know in yoga, you know, we're not like rehabbing ACL surgeries, but I still just think looking at this issue is interesting and helpful when we're talking about like learning about the knee and how it moves and how we load it um, and open versus closed change. So, and it's always helpful, I think, to learn about controversies and myths, but um, it's probably good to do both open and closed chain for um strengthening the knee they're probably both good and they're different right i like yeah i think so so should we move on to our next our next question yeah our next question is what's the deal with knee alignment in chair pose <laughs> yes and i kind of think this may tie into a few different things that we could talk about with this um mm -hmm. The questions that we got about this, it made me remember that this is something people are confused about sometimes, but I, I think the qu actual question there is a little, it's a little confusing. Someone said like, um, keep your hips aligned in chair pose, but this is really more of a, sorry, keep your knees aligned in chair pose, but this is really more of a hip thing. Mm -hmm. I think that's not really a question, but I think I understand what this person was suggesting is just maybe sometimes in chair utkatasana in yoga we cue where the knees should go you know like put your knees here but that really where the knees go is controlled by what's what the hips are doing that's what i think this question is yeah. so maybe clarifying that a little yeah I, I agree yeah i mean i still think you could cue where the knees go but just maybe right. realizing what's moving them is actually the hip right yeah and to an extent what's going on at the foot so if your knee, let's say your knee is caving in, we talked about mm -hmm. valgus in yes. the previous episode, that's yes. knock knees. Mm -hmm. That is really a function of your hip going into adduction, adduction, and internal rotation, but yes. it's also a function of your foot pronating, or it can be. Yes. So the what you see is the knee caving in, but that's not like, there's no muscle at the knee that prevents that it's the muscles at the, especially at the hip but also to an extent in the foot yeah that's so true it's like the whole kinetic chain right mm -hmm. um but especially the the what the hip and the foot are doing um it's true so i think it's helpful to maybe to broaden realize like what's actually controlling where the knees go because that may help us then maybe fine-tune our cueing or our body in our own practice um, and maybe this can tie into something else we sort of we thought we might address today, Travis, which was just in general, the idea of knee valgus or letting the knee track inward in some of our yoga poses like like chair pose, like there's chair, you could have the knees angle in and chair, but there's also like warrior two where sometimes that front knee tracks inward or less commonly I find in the forward facing like high lunge and warrior one. I mean, maybe, but it seems to me to happen more in warrior two and maybe more in chair pose. Um, yeah. But there's a lot, there are a lot of cautions that like, that's really bad and you shouldn't do that. Uh, what's, what do you think about that? <laughs> I think it's not a big deal. I think that it like, if the caution is that that's going to injure you, then that's, you, we just can't say that. There's yeah. no guarantee. And it's just such a low stakes body weight endeavor that the forces are likely not high enough to cause any sort of injury. To yes. Me. Yeah. Yes. Like rapidly going into knee valgus, especially if you're cut like performing an athletic mover like a cut a sidestep cut or a pivot or you're landing from a jump like mm -hmm. in that in those cases maybe but 
in the case of a quasi static or static pose where the knee is dipping in, I don't see that as problematic in and of itself. From an injury context. Yeah. I think that I would wonder like, why is that happening? And is the person aware? And if they do become aware, can they change their position? Like, can they, if, if they're told, like, can you move your knee out over the middle of your foot and they can, then that's kind of like done deal. Um, if they can't sense that or like find the muscular activation or engagement to, uh, move the knee out over the middle of the foot, then I would wonder about like a control thing or a strength thing and maybe maybe address it um maybe not <laughs> it depends but i i think in general i i would i would like to have i would like for like like if i'm working with somebody in a personal training context and something like that that something like that's happening i would like for them to have the option for it not to happen but then if it does happen and like they if you choose to do that then that's okay uh, but it's it's about having the option, right? Like having maybe the awareness of like your the positioning of your parts in space, and if you're just really disconnected and don't even know the position, that's a little different than you are aware and maybe you're intentionally doing that, or maybe right. you're intentionally bringing the knee in and out back and forth in Warrior Two to like intentionally move the hip that way or something, which is a little different than just being in Warrior Two and the knee is in and you don't really realize it. Yeah. But all of that, like if we take all that, take a step back, it's probably not likely that that could be a a mechanism for injury. Like it's probably not something we have to worry about as far as protecting the knee, but there may be other reasons that, that you might want to um, address it or change it. Right. Cool. (laughs) Thanks for sharing your perspective on that. Of course. Do you think that kind of covers the chair pose and knee alignment? There is, there's another question we got. Um, which was, I'd like to hear your thoughts on squeezing the knees together in chair pose. Personally, I find that action to be uncomfortable in my knees. So I keep my feet separated in chair. Is that a thing? Um, (laughs) I mean, clearly that person experienced it. So it's a thing. I've just never experienced that. I've never, I have not experienced squeezing the knees together as like a default cue, like that that's what you're supposed to do in chair pose. You have to have your feet pretty close. Like you could maybe squeeze a block, right? I could imagine that. You could, yes, totally. Well, that's actually another question, Travis, is um, in some styles of yoga, chair pose is taught with the feet and knees together, like they're oh, together. And then okay. in some styles of yoga, the feet and knees are apart. Well, some styles correct. of yoga are just like, place your feet wherever you want to, <laughs> which, which is which correct. Which is the right alignment. <laughs> oh, I'm just no. kidding. Right, right, right. Like there could probably be many right alignments. Yeah. But if it feels uncomfortable, then like that's a, that's fine and it, you don't have to do it that way because you could just go to a different class where they're queuing it the other way <laughs> exactly exactly um i don't know i don't know about this but like maybe there's maybe there's the potential for if you're in chair pose and your knees are kind of just knocking into one another they're just like leaning into each other and you're not really kind of engaging all the way around the hip maybe there's a a reason that you might then want to separate the knees just so that if they're separated, then you have to hold them in space more, you know, all the way around the hip. Yeah. Do you kind of know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, if, if they're just knocking together, then there's an opportunity there to create more engagement so that that doesn't happen. Exactly. And if you can't, then that could be an issue of working on your control or working on your hip strength. On your hip strength. Yeah, precisely. Thank you. Um, I think that now I think that that's kind of covered that question. I think, um, we are, we're definitely not going to get to these other questions that people sent in that were repeats that we've already addressed. Yeah. So we can link those. We will link all of those. Um, Travis, can I ask one last one? Yeah. One last one is in warrior one pose, you know, forward facing lunge, but the back heel is down warrior one. Mm -hmm. Um, there there's sometimes this this kind of rule in the yoga world that you should not square your hips all the way forward in warrior one. Mm-hmm. 
Because if you do, that's going to rotate the back knee. Got it. Yeah. Good. <laughs> so I wonder what you, so like compared to high lunge in a high lunge, the pelvis does square totally forward, but then your back heel is lifted and then everything mm -hmm. is just kind of facing forward. In warrior one, the back heel is down. So there's some rotation happening back there. Right. What's your sense of the warning that like, because what I tend to experience is the warning is like, you should not teach warrior one with the hip squared forward because that's going to rotate the knee and that's bad. Yeah. So what, from an anatomical standpoint, the, the hip is in external rotation. The back hip. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the more you square your pelvis, the more external rotation you'd be going into, right? Yeah. In the hip. Uh, because I think we talked about this in the hip rotation episode. We did. Uh, just, just, yeah, I don't know about the torque on the knee, but just the idea of what are you in an internally or externally rotated position? A lot so, of people think it's internal, but we're right, letting everyone right. know it's external rotation of the back hip. Yeah. So if you have limited external rotation, then I could see that you might feel some torque on your knee to if you try to square the hips. But like, I guess the question is how much external rotation does it require? And then how much external rotation do people have? I think we figured out that that was like 35 degrees or 45. 45, 45 degrees. It's just average yeah. external rotation. Yeah. So I think it depends on the person, right? So if you're limited yeah. in external rotation and then you go to square the hips, then that could, like if you're, if the foot is planted, then that could put some torque on the knee, but that's not going to happen to everybody. So if mm -hmm. I, th I think we shouldn't make blanket statements about the danger of squaring the pelvis because some people probably are just fine. Right. Um, but maybe some people would feel better and more comfortable with their hips not squared. What do you think? <laughs> I think so. I think so. Like, um, maybe I'd suggest if someone experiences pain in the knee in that pose that they, you know, maybe try not to control the pelvis so much that they like insist on squaring it forward. Yeah. You, um, like, you, um, what should we say instead? Say nothing at all. Like, yes. if you don't cue that, the pelvis will just do what it has to do exactly. to embody the posture. And then like, I feel like it's getting into micromanaging, like, Oh, make sure that the pelvis is squared or not squared by 10 degrees. Totally. Or mi micro you need to unsquared. Into this this horizon, align everything with the horizon or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You can't be a few degrees off because why, like what happens if you're not lined up with those straight lines and you know, like, so is the, is the textbook quote unquote alignment to have the hip square. And then there are people who are saying, oh, but we shouldn't because of what that could do to the knee or is it the opposite? That's a good question. That's my understanding. I might have to like, look up again, like light on yoga or whatever and see, <laughs> you know, it also, right. it also could be, it was just kind of generally you're facing forward maybe later in iterations where like, it must be squared, you know, all these like straight lines lining up with. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I have a really good answer to that. Yeah. Um, but but maybe, yeah. Maybe we don't have to even worry about it. It'll just <laughs> exactly. happen the way it needs to happen. Your, bo your body will but if, yeah, if, if somebody's knee is bothering them and then they can be freed of that discomfort by uh, not forcing themselves to square their pelvis, then that's great. Absolutely. Um, and if they really just feel uncomfortable in warrior one, they could always try high lunge instead where Perfect. the heel spins up, you know, and then everything just faces. It's like very, it's, Problem we solved. talked in the other episode, there are some differences between the two and maybe some reasons for teaching one versus the other in any moment, but they're also quite similar. <laughs> they share a lot of similarities. Right. Um, it's probably not a huge deal if you have your back heel up instead of having it down. Probably not a huge deal if you don't know the difference between them, which I didn't for the first <laughs> 15 years of my yoga career. That's right, Travis. That's yeah. okay. So if you're just, if our listeners are just hearing about the difference for the first time like me, then know that you're not alone. 
You have a good, I'm sure, as you said. I'm sure that I'm the only one who didn't know. No, no, no. I think a lot of people don't um, quite understand the difference or even teachers generally definitely do know Te- the difference. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, teachers know yeah. because they're cueing it. But like as a student, I'm not necessarily internalizing the names of the poses. Like, oh, I, I can see mm-hmm. that. I've done that before. I know what to do. But remembering that this one's called warrior one and this one's called high lunge and then therefore this is the difference between them like that might not be on the radar of a casual student right totally at least it wasn't for me (laughs) that's right and i think on the whole like we said they're quite similar so how important is i mean it just depends i think on your intention in the in the moment you know Mm -hmm. um but anyway so i think that's a good nuanced nuanced answer for that question Cool. But Travis, we've kind of come to, I think we did a good job of covering our questions. I feel good. Yeah, me too. We will um, put links in the show notes to the other questions that came in that we've already addressed in other podcast episodes. And those are all really good questions. So definitely go check those episodes out if you haven't yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but all in all, um, I think that this has been this has been a helpful kind of thorough look at these good questions that we received. Um, that's really the need. Yeah, that's the need. There you go. Thanks so much for having this conversation with me, Travis. Thank you, Jenny. And that wraps up our look at yoga myths about the knee. Remember that you could support our work with this podcast by subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a rating or a review. You can also stay in the loop with all of our offerings by signing up for my email newsletter at jennyrawlings.com newsletter. Lastly, remember to use code podcast30 for 30% off your first month in Travis's and my Strength for Yoga remote group training program or 30% off your first month in any of the other memberships on my website. You can learn more and sign up at jennyrawlings.com and the link is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science today. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode soon. Mm